I had been counting down the days all December. School was finally on break. Presents were wrapped and piled under our Christmas tree. And finally, it was Christmas Eve. Uh, When I was a kid, my family always opened up presents on Christmas Eve, but we wouldn't do it until the very end of the night. Uh, So first, we had to go through several things. We had to get dressed into our Christmas Eve best, and so um, I put on my cool white khakis and my green button-down shirt and my red boat shoes with glow-in-the-dark shoelaces. I was so cool. Um, And after getting dressed, um, we waited for dinner to be ready, and we started nagging my mom. Mom, can't we just open one present before dinner? Of course, the answer was always no, but we had to ask. And so we sat down, finally, for our Christmas Eve dinner. Um, In our house, that was uh, shrimp, green giant corn, mashed potatoes, gravy, and sometimes some other delicious foods. Uh, As a Norwegian, someone with a Norwegian background, we did not eat lutefisk, which is this kind of gelatinous, very gross fish, in my opinion. But, um, But after dinner, we would run out into the living room and we'd start poking around our presents, uh, shaking some, trying to, to guess what they were by their shape. And of course, then my mom would call us all back to the kitchen to help clear the table and take care of the dishes to our groaning. Um, but once that was finally done, we would rush back into the living room, uh, hoping that maybe now the time had finally come. Can we open our presents now? No. But you can go get your dad's Bible, and we can sit down and read the Christmas story together. And so after we would read uh, the accounts of Jesus' birth from from Luke and Matthew and singing a couple of Christmas carols, finally the moment came that we had been waiting for, presents. And so we were ecstatic as we then were able to finally open, uh, tear into the wrapping paper and uncover uh, treasure after treasure, the weight was worth it. We are in the season of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, which is a season of waiting. Waiting with expectation. Kind of like my Christmas Eve experience as a kid, although we're not necessarily waiting for for presents, but uh, last Sunday we looked at at a, a passage actually from the end of Jesus' ministry where he spoke of his second coming and how to prepare for that day by waiting with expectation to be watchful for the fact that Christ is coming again. Today, we're going to step back, actually, to the beginning of his ministry, actually before Jesus began his ministry, and we're going to hear the voice of a strange man in the wilderness calling people to also prepare for something that was about to happen, for what God was about to do in their midst. So my, my sermon title today is living expectantly. We're going to look at what this this strange man, John the Baptist, said to the people of Israel about living expectantly and how that might apply to our lives today as well, especially during this season of Advent. So our text today is Luke chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What shall we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us open ears and hearts to receive from you today, Lord. Speak, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The people were waiting expectantly. That is what Luke says about the people of Israel at the time when John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing in the wilderness. Now, before we look at what John says about how the people should live expectantly, how they should um, wait actively expectantly, I want to start by looking at what the people were expectant about. What was it that they were expecting? How and and how that expectation uh, might, we might see parallels of that in our world today. So let's start by looking at the people's expectations. Uh, The people of Israel were not in a great situation. Verse 1 of our text, it, it, when we read it, it, it maybe sounded kind of like this, just this list of, of different names that we're not really very familiar with. But, but this list, Luke gives this list for a reason. Uh, Luke gives this list of rulers to show what the climate was like at the time when John was preaching. He starts the list by talking about Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor who ruled over the entire Roman empire and Israel was a part of that Roman Empire. Then he talks about Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of Judea. 
he also was a Roman ruler. He was the Roman governor who we, we many of us have heard of Pontius Pilate because of his role later on with Jesus' crucifixion. The, the Judea was the southern part of Israel, and so Rome had direct control over that area, over Jerusalem itself. The next names, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias, they were also rulers over other areas. They were kind of, had a little bit, they weren't Roman rulers, but they were also loyal to Rome. They were basically leading um, along the, very much in line with what, with what Rome did. And so what, Paul, what Luke is doing here is he's highlighting the fact that the people of Israel were under the control of this pagan, oppressive empire, which taxed the people heavily, that ruled with control and fear. And, and this, this constant reminder of Roman soldiers in their streets and, and these rulers that was that they were not free, that they were not what they used to be under King David when, when they were themselves a kingdom. Now they were oppressed. Now they were under the control of someone else. But the people clung to these prophecies, prophecies that spoke of a coming Messiah, the anointed one. And they believed, many people at that time believed that, that the Messiah, when he came, he would rescue them from the oppression of Rome, that he would finally bring them back to the place of power that where they used to be. The people thought back on their history, how God had rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea and, and the wilderness into the promised land. And they remembered how they had been sent into exile in Babylon, but, but God had brought them back from that too. He brought back a remnant to the land and, and they'd rebuilt the temple. And so in their history, they saw these moments where God came through. He rescued them. And so he were, they were longing for God to do the same thing, for God to once again give a new exodus, a new return from exile. In verses 4 to 6, Luke quotes from the prophet Isaiah, which gives voice to the people's longings and expectations, where he says, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. That is what the people were waiting for. They're waiting for the Lord to come, prepare the way for the Lord. And that when the Lord came, that, that he would lift up the low places and he would smooth out the rough places they're waiting to see God's salvation. I think that many of us can probably relate to this feeling of expectant longing. In our world, we may not be under the oppressive rule of a foreign empire, but when we look out at our world, we see a lot of things that, that need to be lifted up and places smoothed out. Just this past year, we can think of Many communities devastated by fires and natural disasters. Areas in our world that have been ravaged by war. People in our communities trapped by addictions. Children separated from their parents at the border. Families and neighborhoods torn apart by mass shootings. There's all kinds of things in our world. We look out and we see, man, there's, there's, our world is not as it should be. And then there are the more personal experiences of loss and frustration, losing a loved one, 
getting injured or being diagnosed with a disease, losing a job, struggling to make ends meet, experiencing rejection in a relationship, being overwhelmed with anxiety or depression. There are all kinds of things that, that can make us have a longing for things to change, a longing for, for things to be put right, for, for someone to fix our problems, to lift up the low places, to smooth out the rough places, to bring us salvation. And in the midst of the people's expectant longing, Luke tells us the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So people are waiting. And Luke tells us, and all, all these rulers are ruling, and the people are oppressed, and he says, and all of a sudden, though, the word of God came to John in the desert. The desert, the wilderness. Does that sound familiar? Has God ever worked in the desert before, in the wilderness? This was a, a reminder of, of the fact that God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and where? To the promised land. And here we have a voice calling out in the desert. It had been 400 years since the last prophet, Malachi, had spoken the word of the Lord. That, that, that statement, the word of God, came to John. That hadn't happened for 400 years that the word of God came specifically to a prophet. And here, all of a sudden, in the desert, the word of God comes to this man, John. Could John be the voice of one calling in the desert? whom Isaiah spoke about? Was the Lord finally coming to bring salvation, to lift up the low places, to smooth out the rough ones? Well, verse 15 tells us, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. So something's happening here, right? They're not sure what, but they hear this, this crazy guy out in the wilderness proclaiming this message and preaching, and, and we're going to talk in a second about that, but this question that, that must have been running through their minds is, who is this John? What is God about to do? So let's look at this man, John. Let's look at John's message. What does John do? What does John say to address the people's expectations? Well, the first thing we're told about John in verse 3 um, says, he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, for us, we often think of baptism in the sense of Christian baptism, right? When, when, when someone is baptized into Christ. But John's baptism was different. And, and actually, even before John baptized, there was a practice of baptism that, exists, that existed in Israel. But what it was, was it was for Gentiles who are converting to Judaism. So if you were a non-Jewish person and you wanted to become part of the people of Israel, that was one of the practices that they would sometimes do, is that it was a convert sort of baptism from Gentile into Judaism. But what John is doing here in the, in the wilderness, in the desert, he's not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. Now for, that, for, for people at that time, 
why would, some, why would a Jewish person need to be baptized? I mean, that, 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 that didn't compute for, for them. But, but here John is out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing Jewish people who are coming to him. What John was saying here is that Jewish people, the people of Israel, they needed cleansing and conversion and redemption just as much as Gentiles did, that, that they also needed repentance. He says it's a baptism of repentance. And so that's really the first element of John's message is this message, repent. That word repent means to change your mind or change direction, to turn around. Um, A story that always comes to my mind when I think about what it means to repent is when I first moved to New York City, um, I moved to Astoria, Queens after graduating from seminary. And I was still getting used to the roads around there. And so one day I was driving on the Grand Central Parkway from Flushing to Astoria. And my exit was the very last exit before you get onto the Triborough Bridge. And I was sort of like lost in thought and didn't realize my exit was coming up. And suddenly I found myself driving over the Triborough Bridge into the Bronx. Um, And so as I realized this, I, I realized... I need to turn around. I need to figure out some way to get back to Queens. Um, I had to make a U-turn. I was going the wrong direction. I needed to head back over the bridge. What John the Baptist was saying when he says repent, he's saying you guys are going in the wrong direction. You've gone over the wrong bridge. You need to make a U-turn. And he was saying this to the people of Israel. And he doesn't hold back. By saying this, in verses 7 and 9, he says to the crowds, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's talking again to Jewish people. We have Abraham as our father. We're fine. But he says, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John doesn't mince words here. I saw an actually an internet meme the other day uh, that's going to be up here on the screen. It has a picture of John the Baptist that says, Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. Um, That's sort of the the picture that we're getting here from, from John the Baptist. Um, I mentioned last Sunday that the texts that I'm preaching in Advent this year are not Christmas texts, right? They're not texts that we often associate with Jesus' birth, but they're Advent texts. They're texts that are that are about this expectation and waiting. And this text, again, it's it's you're you're probably not going to put John the Baptist's words here, like on your Christmas card this year. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming. These are not, these aren't, they're not nice, soft words that John says, but John's message is important. It's incredibly important, and it's important not just for the people of Israel, but it's important for us to hear this message, because it can be very easy to look out at our world, like we were talking about, at all the problems that are out there, at at all the, the people that are doing horrible things. And we begin to think that the problem in our world, it's out there. The problem is is with, with other people and other situations. 
and we begin to think that what we really need to be saved from is all these external things. We need to be saved from, or, or things even in our lives, but, but it's all stuff outside of ourselves. We begin to think that's where the problem is. But here's the thing. John here is saying the problem is with us. That we don't only need to be saved from things out there, but we need to be saved from ourselves. The Jewish people at the time, they thought they were doing just fine. John says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You can't just rest on your family background. Oh, well, my, my parents, they're Christians. or they, I, I grew up in a Christian home. No, 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 that's, that's not good enough. It's not about our family or our whatever background. John is telling the people of Israel, no, no, no. Each of you all today need to repent, to turn around, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, just as much as the Gentiles do, as the people outside of Israel. It's so much easier to see the sin and brokenness in other people and in the world around us and to basically think, I'm pretty good, I'm doing fine. But John warns us that just like the people of Israel in his day, we too are a brood of vipers. In our sinful nature, brood is talking about offspring of vipers, snakes. We are the offspring of that ancient serpent, Satan, who poisoned the minds of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We, that's, that's running through our veins. Snake venom. And we don't like to be told that. You don't want to hear a message like this in our nice, cozy Christmas season, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all know deep down that we have that. We have thoughts. We have attitudes that are wrong. We have hearts that are so often centered on ourselves. I mean, when we hear John say in, in verse 11... The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the, should do the same. You know what often happens when we, when we hear that? Our, our minds immediately start thinking of excuses for why it's okay that I haven't actually done that. You know? We start coming up with excuses. Well, you know, it's, I don't think John really means that literally that I should like, if I have two coats, I should give a coat to someone else. right? Or if I have food that I should be giving that food to people who are in need, we begin to think of excuses. Or if we do do this, we give a coat or we give food or we, we give to someone, what happens? Our tendency is to then feel pretty good about ourselves, get kind of prideful about it, and maybe we kind of like drop hints to other people about the good that we've been doing during this holiday season and and we start to kind of silently judge the other people who are not doing this. I, I, I gave a coat. This person's really selfish over here. You see, whether we do it or we don't, we've got this, this sinful nature that just comes out and no matter what we do. And John warns, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down. And thrown into the fire. We cannot produce good fruit in ourselves. We can't. 
Even the good that we do, it's tainted. And so we are, in ourselves, in danger of this. We are in danger of being cut down and thrown into the fire. And John says, repent. Acknowledge that you're headed in the wrong direction. Don't delude yourselves. Admit that you need to be saved. You need to be saved from, your, by your, from yourself. You need sa- salvation from your sin, your selfishness, and you even need to be saved from the good deeds that you do that, that are more about yourself. And guess what? We need that sort of salvation even more than salvation from the external things in our world and from problems going on in our everyday lives. I mean, we, we, might need, we want God to rescue us from those things too, but our deepest need is salvation. So then comes the second part of John's message, which is that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. At the very end of our passage, verse 18, it says, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Now, when you read that, that verse, we'll have up here in a second, you might wonder, good news? Good news? What, what kind of good news is, is John giving here? So far, we've heard um, John calling us brood of vipers and talking about the coming wrath and trees being cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, even his instructions about giving clothes and food to people, it's not really good news. That's more just instructions about what we should do. Where's the good news that that John preached that it says there in verse 18? Well, when the people began to wonder if John might be the promised Messiah, the Christ, this is what John says to them in verse 16. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John proclaims there's someone else coming. There's someone coming. He's way better than I am. He's way greater than I am. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one who's going to bring God's salvation. He's the one. He himself is the Lord that Isaiah talked about. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. And he's going to lift up the low places. He's going to smooth out the rough places. He's the one who's bringing forgiveness for all of you brood of vipers. He's bringing salvation. And the verses immediately following these, guess who comes onto the scene? Jesus. Jesus begins to walk. And John points, he's the one I was talking about. See, Jesus is the one that John says will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John was able to call people to repentance, telling them to acknowledge their sin, to turn around. But but guess what? The truth is that in ourselves, we aren't even able to repent without God working in us, without God doing something in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin And leads us to repentance. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We need that baptism of the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit to work in us. 
to bring us to repentance and to give us the faith to receive God's salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. And so we need Jesus to do this greater work, baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, enabling us to repent and believe. And the good news for you today, brothers and sisters, is that for for the people of Israel, it was good news that, that Jesus was coming. But for us, we get even greater news. Jesus has come. He's already come. He came to earth as a baby, born in Bethlehem, that we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks in Christmas. And he came to the people of Israel announcing the kingdom of God had come, come near to them. And then he went to the cross to pay for viper, brood of vipers like us, to pay for our sin so we can be forgiven, so we can be cleansed. And then he came out of the tomb, resurrected and victorious, and he returned to his Father and sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who leads us to repentance and faith. And the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of repentance that John talked about. Sharing what we have with others. Acting justly in our work. Guess what? Those things, we can do them Through the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it in ourselves, but we can do it with God working in us. Bearing fruit of repentance. To give, to love our neighbor. To do the things that we can't do ourselves. And he's coming again. He's coming again to bring the fullness of his salvation in our world, to bring an end to suffering and death. All those things that we talked about earlier, the things that we we look at in our world and we say, God, why won't you solve all this? Well, he will. He's coming again to bring an end to injustice and to suffering. And he's coming also, as, as this passage says, he's coming to bring judgment on evil and sin. He's coming to judge these things. But for all those who are clinging to our Savior, he's coming to bring salvation. To those who have repented, to those who have believed that good news that John began to preach, but that Jesus himself preached, and for those of us who have received the Holy Spirit, he's coming again to bring us to himself. When I was a kid, I couldn't wait to open those presents on Christmas Eve. I wanted to jump straight there, right? I didn't want to go through all those other things. Sometimes we we wish that we could just jump straight to the goods, just straight to, to heaven. But my parents wanted me to experience the goodness in waiting and living expectantly. Because then the presence, when we got there, they almost were even more joyful because of the process that I went through to get there. We, know, we don't know when Christ will return or when Christ will call us home. But until that day, when we get to open up all of his heavenly presence for us, that our Father has prepared for us, we are called now to live expectantly, to live with anticipation and with waiting. And what does that look like? And it looks exactly like what we've been talking about today. Repenting of our sin daily. Asking God, to produce his fruit in our lives and then living out that fruit as he does it. 
and resting in the fact that Jesus has come and eagerly awaiting his return. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have come. Lord, that when John proclaimed, prepare the way of the Lord, Lord, we we know today that, that you've come already. And we thank you that you came into this world to bring salvation, to, to do what we can't do, Lord, to, to rescue sinners like us. And so we pray, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would, would lead us to repentance, to lead us to turn from our sin, to turn from our selfishness, to turn even from the good things that we do, but that we do out of wrong motives, that we do for, really for ourselves more. Lord, that you would bring us to repentance, to, to bring these things before you, to acknowledge it, and that you would give us the faith to trust that that you have paid for all of this in full on the cross, that we are washed clean, just as John was washing those people with the water, Lord, that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, and that we can trust in that, Lord, and we can stand tall in the righteousness that Christ has, has credited to us, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that, that as we repent and as we believe, Lord, that you would Produce now fruit in our lives to live expectantly, Lord, and that that would be obvious to people around us that we are living with joy and peace even in the midst of a world that has gone crazy, even in situations in our lives that are difficult, but that you would produce that fruit in us, God, to live differently, to live expectantly, and that we would also give generously to those around us out of what you have done for us. Do that work, Lord. We can't do it ourselves, but we know that you can. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Do this work in us and and help us to live expectantly as we wait for the day when we will be gathered to you, when suffering and death will be no more, where we'll be in your presence forever. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.